Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported community project. People always ask me, how can I join Team Human? And I usually tell them, if you're alive, you're already on Team Human. Just go find the others. But if you want to get some skin in the game, I encourage you to go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to join teammates like Hannah Reese, TBC, Alan Elmura, Ted Shulman, and Michael Cunningham, who've become supporting members and gained access to our Discord channel, our Team Human audio salons, as well as free admission to our Team Human live events. They're also getting access to the Team Human team feed with bonus content, including conversations I've had with everyone from, from Timothy Leary and Nina Graboy to Genesis Breyer Peorage. You can even get books, t-shirts, and the knowledge that you're keeping a roof over our editor's head. So join Team Human. Gain access to our shared clothing optional Team Human dream space every night during your sleep. See you there. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, a way station for those traveling in the liminal spaces between one and zero, yes and no, right and wrong, us and them, a freeform conversation and celebration of the art of conversation itself, a place where we can admit the deepest truth. I'm on Team Human. Are you? Playing for Team Human today, my friend, author and journalist, David Zweig. It is okay to recognize that bad things sometimes happen from something that overall is good. Bad things happen on the highway every day, but we all get in our cars and go on the highway anyway because it it does something good for us. It takes us to places we want to go, and we are willing to accept some risk. David will be helping us parse the well-meaning but sometimes inaccurate communication from our health officials about COVID. Is the government becoming a helicopter parent? And don't helicopters make people paranoid? It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human.
My accountant, Shelley Gordon, died Monday night. And it might not be the kind of news one would normally think about for too long, much less talk about here. You know, your accountant dies, you find another one. It's just business, right? Not really. You see, Shelley cared about me and my family in a way that really transcends what one might call a client relationship. And I promise he wasn't just doing the sorts of things that one might learn in a sales or customer relations course about sending calendars or Christmas gifts, making small talk or remembering the name of someone's kids because they're in the contact database. Now, Shelley merged his business and personal life, what Marx might call his economic and his social lives, in a way that made them indistinguishable, ethically, creatively, and yeah, sure, professionally. But there's a lesson here, I think, for people trying to do business in a more holistic way. But maybe there's even more of a lesson for people like me, this kind of Gen X people who are often at pains to distinguish between work and life, as if business and money somehow sully or compromise a genuine friendship. You know, we we work for strangers, but we do favors for our friends. Don't mix business and pleasure, I've heard countless times growing up. But that ethos, this don't mix business and pleasure ethos, it's it's itself an artifact of a world where our work was intentionally disconnected from our social reality, where we started working for the man instead of working for one another. And Shelley, he worked in the opposite way. Every one of his clients became a member of his family. I mean, for real. I knew his sons, particularly the one who became the lawyer and the one who became an accountant like his dad. I knew his wife who would wait with me on the phone instead of putting me on hold so she could inquire about my wife's health or reassure me that the latest letter from the IRS wasn't going to become a problem. My own dad was an accountant, and he did my taxes until he died. And Shelley took me on as if I were another son. He'd take my calls at any time, day or night, office or home, even when he was in Boca. He'd want to talk about my work, particularly when my books turned to business or the economy. He'd tell me what subjects he thought would be most useful to him as a reader. And I also like to think I was at least part of the reason he switched allegiances from the Yankees to the Mets after 70 years a diehard Yankee fan because I convinced him it would be a greater challenge to be a Mets fan. But this wasn't the part of our relationship that was so unique to me. I mean, what made Shelley so special was the way he expressed his love and care for me through his work, his professional work on my behalf. When my wife and I got audited for our health care expenses, because the IRS, I think they simply couldn't believe how little our insurance actually reimbursed us, he took personal umbrage, and so did his wife and his kids, and he took personal pleasure in fighting for my family. It was a six-month 
battle with hundreds of pages of paperwork and diagnosis codes, prescription denials, and letters from doctors and explanations of benefits and bank statements. And I'll never forget the day he called me from his Florida condo to say, kid, they won't be bothering you again. He was gloating, not because he had brought the IRS to its knees, but because he had protected his kin from a predator. And this is the sort of business relationship that Marx was referring to when he wrote about our ways of working before capitalism. We didn't work for profit, but to enact equity. Our relationships were fundamentally social, not in the sense that we were friends, but that we were all contributing to the family enterprise together. So I might go kill a chicken and bring it home to my family, and they'd been making rice and tortillas all day. And between all of us, we'd get burritos. But only with the advent of the marketplace did we stop thinking about how genuinely useful we could be to one another and instead focus on how to maximize our exchange value? That's how much profit we could get in the deal. So yes, I paid Shelley for his services, but it was as if a fee structure didn't exist. It was simply my way of helping to pay the bills. We were in it together, contributing as best we could to each other's lives as if we were family. So yes, I'll miss the accountant who taught me the true meaning of the word accountability. Thank God his son is now my brother and my new accountant. There's COVID madness all around us. And I don't just mean the people who are refusing to get vaxxed because they think Bill Gates put nanobots in there that can control and surveil them. I mean almost everyone in one way or another, trying to protect themselves and their kids or not protect themselves. My good friend and neighbor, David Zweig, has been writing rather controversial pieces about COVID policy for Wired and New York Magazine since the beginning of the outbreak. He's not questioning the science so much as the way that the science is being represented to us by our well-meaning authorities. It's as if they're so scared of the conspiracy theorists that they're overcorrecting and then generating more suspicions when eventually their misrepresentations or overrepresentations are revealed. It's a public relations conundrum and one that epidemiologists may not be the best trained people to be trying to do. We recorded this episode just before they approved vaccines for younger kids. So keep that in mind when you get to that section. You know, the first thing I really knew about you, it's really interesting, and it's a very team human book you wrote about the invisibles. The the invisibles, the fun thing about it was it was about I mean, not just unsung heroes, but on the one hand, it's sort of like Studs Turkel sort of working or the Marissa Bow and John Bow book gig, mm-hmm. you know, that here are people and here's what they do and weird jobs that maybe you never even knew existed. Exactly. What it particularly interested me were people who were highly skilled professionals, but who chose professions or fell into professions and thrived there, where their work, that the better they did, 
the less recognition they would get. And if they were perfect, generally the end user or other people would never think of them at all. So when you think about a fact checker, for example, if you do your job perfectly, no one's reading a magazine article and saying to themselves, oh, th this must have been fact checked beautifully. No, right. you just read it and you enjoy the writing and maybe you can appreciate the editing to some degree, but no one's saying, but if you read an article and there's like a glaring error, then you're aware of like, who fact checks this thing? This, this is done right. horribly. So, and the same thing with an anesthesiologist. It, everything goes smoothly. The people, you know, they don't send the fruit basket to the anesthesiologist. My dad's a surgeon. And it's like, he would get, we would always get these fruit baskets sent to the house. I'm like, what's that for? He's like a patient thanking me. I'm like, didn't they pay you? Yeah, they paid me, but they also, it's like an extra thanks. I'm like, wow, that's great. But so you think you, you'll never forget the name of the person who re, who removed your gallbladder, right. probably. But you have no idea the name of the anesthesiologist. You might not even have met him, and that was the right. person at the head of the table keeping you alive. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I worked in an operating room when I was in college, and there are these people, the heart lung people. Mm. There's this machine that when you get an open heart surgery, there's two people that run this machine. It looks like a metal coffin or something on the side of the side of the room, and they are totally responsible. They are your heart while right. the thing is going <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. You know, and it is is high skilled. It's like, right. fuck. And it's like, but most people who do heart surgery don't even know those people exist. Right. So, and the same thing with, again, the start, there's a reason why it's called like a star architect for the architects. Yeah. I did, th this is less life and death ramifications, but um, one of the people I did a profile on the book is what's called a nose in the perfume industry. These are the people who concoct the fragrances in a lab. I mean, they're, and it's sort of this brilliant mixture of art and science because there, there's an art to thinking about how you want to conjure up a certain type of feeling yeah. and so on. And then there's a science behind it to actually understand. They use the mass spectrometer and right. putting together all this stuff. But of course, when someone goes to the store and buys a Dolce Gabbana, you know, perfume, they're not thinking about that person. They think right. Dolce and Gabbana they made know it, Dolce but they or Gabbana, maybe right. Johnny Depp or right. whoever well, it right. is. One of them, you know, was, it was, <laughs> was the ad. They're <laughs> grinding with a mortar and pestle, you know, some rose leaves or something. But it's like, so there are all these people. And what was fascinating to me is our culture values recognition so highly. And I thought it was interesting. Again, the reason why I chose people, most of whom were, were very successful, but who weren't generally recognized for their work, at least not by the end yeah. user. Within yeah. their own fields, they had recognition and their peers knew about them. But, but the end user isn't often thinking about them is that this was, and I think the line I had in the book was that these people were both the antithesis and the antidote. I feel to this sort of like just constant striving for attention. I need attention right. all the time. And of course, lo and behold, all the sort of, you know, psychological research and what I think probably a lot of the religious traditions and all the philosophy, what it tells us is that the way to really achieve a satisfying life, I think the, the word in Greek, you would know this, Doug, eudaimonia, yeah. probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but that's, it's the rich life. And the way to get that is not through these sort of externalized benefits of attention, but through an intrinsic reward of the work itself right. and the value it's, you bring. Exactly. It's, you know, whether it's flow, right. you know, yeah, in flow state, flow state or Alfie Cohn, who mm -hmm. did all this great work on the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic rewards right. at work or right. in school and too much assessment and evaluation. And it take it distances people from the sort of the Zen moment to moment pleasure of just 
picking the berries or doing whatever. And it doesn't have to be, again, it can be so-called low-skilled, but all low-skilled means is that you don't need a high level of skill to be entry-level. Even if you're just picking berries for 30 years, I promise you the 30-year berry picker is picking berries very differently than the (laughs) third-week berry picker. You know, so you do develop, you know, deep Andre Segovia level (laughs) skills. I use him as a as a he's a guitarist, but he was like really good, you know, Pablo Casals level skills. But the thing that that made me think about it again now, especially in the context of Team Human, is so many people email me with their ideas for things. A blockchain social network that will help people, blah, 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 blah. A website that will concatenate and aggregate all the social justice websites that blah, 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 blah. A new way for race and gender to blah, 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 blah. And none of them seem to want to join existing efforts. I'll say, oh, well, you know, I've got 30 other emails from people who are developing almost identical platforms of what you're describing. Do you want to work with them? Can I connect you with them? It's like, well, will they fund me? Will they? It's like, no, it's like you can all be part. But but this this desire, and it's a well, it's a it's a well-meaning desire that that the the it's as if the only models they have in society for doing good are these Greta level, you <laughs> <Greta>. know. <laughs> Well, do you think hearing you say this about people writing into I have this idea and I want that even if they're not consciously seeking recognition or glory for it, maybe some of them are consciously, yeah. but even on on one level or another, how much of that has to do with American um, style individualism? Do you right. think, Doug? I mean, it's like to be, me, it's got to I mean, be. It's, so it's that integrated in our 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 and way then, of viewing right. ourselves and the world and like what's important and what we value. That you know, the sort of YouTuber, you know, like everything is this. Well, it's amplified by social media for and, sure. and, and that versus, I mean, I, you know, the more kind of quote collectivist cultures where there is a real, not only value, but that there's a respect for blending in and being part of quote, a team, team human. Yeah. That, do you think American style individualism, which is now probably bled throughout, you know, uh, the, the globe in many respects, do you think that that in particular is a kind of an affront to team human. Is that one of the obstacles? It is. It is. It's funny. I saw they interviewed this guy. I forgot his last name now. Zach something. He's the new quarterback on the on the Jets. And he's this kid, right? He's right out of college. Gorgeous. I mean, he's I I don't know how you maintain a gorgeous face like that and play football. There's a right? disproportionate number, my wife always talks about this, of handsome quarterbacks. And I guess it it's must, part of it. It must relate to if you are good looking, it, it that helps you become a leader in our Confident society. In some con- way. Right. right. That there is, if someone, and I don't know how to like, I'm sure some social yeah. scientists could like do yeah. some sort of study, but if you look at like NFL quarterbacks, a disproportionate number of them, it's not that they're just athletic, they're handsome. You almost never see an yeah. ugly one. But anyway, so right. anyway, okay. interview after, because <laughs> he did all these passes and stuff that okay. were good. And they're like, dude, you're really good. And he's like, I have these four huge men 
that stand there <laughs> and give me time to throw. And it was like, thank you. Right. It's like, Got right. It. It's those guys who you don't know their names. Right. I mean, well, real fans do. So I was going right. to do a, um, what is it? A left tackle. That's the like right. most important oh, yeah. guy on the team. Um, someone's going to be like, he's saying the it's wrong the right position. Tackle. Right. It's, right. The, it's, right. But yeah. it's the giant guy who's directly to the left of the center. That tends to be the most important blocker for yeah. the quarterback. I guess and for quarter- a right-handed quarterback. I think probably. I yeah. read about maybe this guy at the Giants, or maybe this is a typical thing where he, before each game, like on Saturday night, the quarterback buys all their, their frontline stakes or something. So like, or maybe it's after the game, they do a good job, but to like keep them happy, these guys right. are going to protect me. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And it's that. And it's funny because here I am as the, you know, the host of Team Human and all that. And and I mean, it was part of the reason why I refused at the beginning to call this like the Doug Rushkoff. They wanted me to call it like, <laughs> Rushkoff Rush Radio. Hour. Right? Yeah. Like, you know, the Rogan Show or the whatever. It's right. like, no, I'm not going to use my name. It's like I, they, they had to force me to put, you know, like with Doug Rushkoff on one of the on one of the things because it was like, no, it's got to be. I, I want to be. Invisible. Well, yeah, that would kind of undermine part part of the 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 premise behind Team Human if it was like Doug Rushkoff presents <laughs> Team Human. It's like loses Bill a Graham, little bit. Bill Graham presents the Grateful Dead. So can I tell you yeah. like a, a a funny little thing that I think connects with this? So. Before I got into writing, I played music for a good decade or so in New York, mostly recorded some albums out in Chicago. And I played under my name. It was David Zweig. You know, but I had a, a band with me. I, it was symphonic stuff. So I, one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't perform under just some sort of pseudonym the way like there was a band I loved called Sparkle Horse. I mean, the guy's name is Mark Linkus, yeah. who, who, you know, he was Sparkle Horse. And there's like, you know, 50 different things like this where there's um, the the name, but it's really just one person. But, you know, Nine Inch Nails is really just Trent Reznor, right. for example, even though his name is, of course, famous now. I regret at the time not just making up some sort of band name, even though it was just me. And I think it's because, you know, at the time I was 22 or something, when I started playing, I was insecure. And I I was like, I couldn't tolerate the idea that people might not know it's me. Wait, they're going to think that's how immature and insecure well, I was. Especially the people but you I, knew, like from right, college, if right, you got big, you right, want to make sure that all those kids right, who didn't, you know. I can't play under the name of, you know, some, some thing. And, and I've, always regretted that even while I was playing live I uh, half of me regretted doing that but it's something that I think ties into what we're talking about it's like one of those things where you have to have a degree of secure is like is it not only about and then that wanting to to kind of be part of something larger is it not only about a collectivist mindset but is it also about a certain level of maturity and security because at least for me I view it I mean I love the feeling of being part of something but it was just that like it was like I need the recognition yeah. I need to make sure and now I feel like I don't care about that as much yeah, well, um and and I'm a little embarrassed about it now as I look back well, yeah but those were values that we that that trickled down to us from a lot of from economics we were looking at our parents everyone has their own 401k plan right, right? it's not like a pension from the big company anymore right. it's the collectivist right. retirement so it's it make, individual it makes sense you feel right and particularly right without the lack of a social safety net and blah blah right. blah right there is that, no us right so you need to <laughs> it makes sense that a 22 year old who's writing all the music and coming up with all the arrangements and all this stuff is going to feel, Hey, I, I need the attention from myself. Yeah, it wasn't it was weird. outlandish yeah. to, to know, feel that way. And I get it. We is intrinsically repressive 
to the rights and freedoms of the individual. Well, you know, of course, we know. <laughs> I mean, we we listening and we we in this room know that the only way to for me to actually be me fully is in a we because I need the others to recognize to recognize me. I and mean, that's part of the expression of the individual. Is that's uh, Sartre? He's like you don't exist essentially until <laughs> unless other people are watching you and judging you, but yet in, although they are there to make you exist, that's also, that is the hell as other people is the notion that you're constantly, that your existence relies upon others view of you. I Not guess just view of you, but it relies on your ability to engage responsibly on their behalf. Right. All of the invisibles are to me, what held them in common was how deeply responsible they are to other human beings who will never understand. It's like the, the the mother with the child not letting the kid do something. The kid thinks the mother's just being mean, but the mother's being responsible. Right, right. You know, and that they show up for us even though we don't acknowledge them. That's true weeness. It's interesting hearing you bring, you know, us chatting about invisibles, which I don't think about as often these days. But um, in the context of the work I've been doing with during the pandemic, right. because one of the big things, you know, that this sort of political divide, um, at least the perception of it is that, you know, and this ties into into political theory yeah. is the notion of um, of liberty you know, personal liberty versus other values, like, you know, law and order versus, um, you know, communal values. And that in America, it's like, I want my freedom, period. And that means I don't have to do X, whatever right. X is, whether it's wear a mask, whether it's be vaccinated. And by the way, some of those things, we can get into that. The science, yeah. I think, is it, people have legitimate um, concerns and criticisms, yeah. but the driving force behind it, I think, is not right. an understanding of the science, but more of this deeply ingrained American sense of, I have my rights as an individual, and barring very extreme circumstances, those rights trump all other communal rights. But to COVID, right, there's this landscape now, uh, not just disinformation and misinformation, but a landscape of and we all know, you know, where putting on a mask, whether it works or not, putting on a mask feels like a symbol of acquiescence to Hillary Clinton and the pederast Epstein totalitarian <laughs> uh, dominators, you know, that, that are coming for my tractor and my wife and my freedom. So here's where here's where I think part of the real sticky kind of more complex stuff enters in though. So right. the impetus initially, if we think back a year and a half ago, is like, you know, F this, I'm not wearing a mask or whatever, you know, for all these reasons, we just talked right. about this sort of like libertarian kind of like, I, I, I should be allowed to do what I want. But where things then start to break down is that when you start drilling into the science, which is what I've done on a lot of these things, that there isn't necessarily a good scientific reason for all of these things that they're wanting to burden society with. Some of them do and some don't. Right. And there's a strong lack of nuance in how the public health authorities talk about this. And then the sort of kind of just mainstream medical establishment talks about some of these things. And when you 
polish away all of the kind of important details, you are left with a very kind of binary messaging on a whole variety of things. And then what happens is, and, and Doug, you and I have talked about yeah. this before, is that the people who are already have their kind of like um, hackles up about this and they're already yeah. concerned about these impositions on them. And a lot of these people, or at least some of them, are very smart yeah. and very motivated to look at the actual data. They're motivated to read the studies and know what's going on. And they will seize upon the inconsistencies and the inaccuracies of some of the public health statements, you know, in a snap. And by not being more precise and nuanced in the messaging, they end up doing, the, the health authorities end up doing more harm th th than they should be doing. So it's tricky though, because there's the way they communicate, which is sometimes really bumbling, there's what they actually, what behavior and thing they're actually thinking about before they communicate. And then there's just the wrong stuff that they say. And those combine in a really bad way. So it's like, you know, COVID first happens and people think, oh, I'm going to get, you know, an ND96, whatever. I'm going to get some special <laughs> mask, right? And everybody's running to True Value right. and, and Ace Hardware. Right. And you get all these masks and Fauci and those guys go, oh, fuck. If people buy up all the masks, then the ambulance people aren't going to have masks. And, you know, masks are, it's not really, blah, blah. you don't need to. So they go out on TV, don't get masks, don't wear masks. You don't need masks, don't wear masks. It's all fine. Because And, and I understand because they're like, they sh probably should have said, please save the masks for the people who really, really need them. Yeah, they would help you a little bit and whatever, but come on, be nice, be nice. So then they say, then eventually there's enough masks or whatever, maybe enough PPE or some, and they, they kind of, oh, well, actually you should wear masks. Right. Turns out. <laughs> but then everybody's like, well, wait a minute, you said no masks, now you're saying yes masks. So which is it? Which right. is it? It's like the original sin of the of the pandemic. It was, was the original was, sin. Was was the the Fauci flip flop on the mass and 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 as you just noted, it would have been fine if a the scientific you know evidence had changed, which which it hadn't. Right. Um, or and they're like, look, things have changed. It turns out it is effective. Um, or b if they were honest and said, look. The people who work in hospitals and ambulances, whatever, these people need specific gear to help protect them, or at least we believe this to be the case. Please don't buy any of that stuff. You can buy a cloth mask off of Etsy or something or make one yourself yeah. out of your underwear if you feel like it. But um, please don't buy any of those. But, but but be honest. But but instead, they didn't say that. In, they didn't say that. Right. He said, you don't need them. And this has happened over and over and over again with the CDC or with Fauci and with a whole, you know, slew of physicians who are now on television right. all the time where they repeat things with such certainty, with such binary assuredness. And and they're wrong but over they're, and over again, and it, and it ends up hurting right. them yeah. because the people who I was just talking about, and some of whom who I correspond with, yeah. and who I know, and who I really like, and who I share views with, uh, that that some of these they spot this in a second. It gives them something to grab onto and say this is bullshit, and here's why. Instead, right. had they been honest, if you air everything out from the beginning. Then there's nothing for those people to grab onto. But so what it really shows is an utter disregard 
for the sort of, I don't know, intelligence isn't the right word, but a disregard just for the average American to be able to take in some basic messaging and quote, do the right thing. So two questions. Yeah. One, is it justified? And two, even if it is justified to not actually give the real information, I think it's very evident that not giving the correct information actually be became more harmful. Right. In the, in the long term. But right. The thing is, there's the real science... Then there's the decisions that authorities have made in what they believe is our best total interest about what behaviors they want to engender in us. So they decide that wearing masks is good for you know adults in small rooms at work. It's going to stop disease. The only way we're going to get adults to wear masks, and this is what they decide – is not to tell them when exactly it's important, but let's just get everyone wearing masks all the time. So in those 50% of situations where we need it, they're going to do it. And then they come up with a, a communication strategy. And this, this is why I keep thinking about Walter Lippmann. You know, Walter Lippmann's his, his, he was a progressive. Everyone forgets that. He was a true progressive, not Bernie-esque progressive, but pretty progressive for the time. And he believed people just were just not really educated and smart and rational enough to make the best choices on our own behalf. You know, that we are in Plato's cave. He always wrote about Plato's cave, that we're just looking at pictures in our heads and making decisions randomly based on that. So what the government needs is a council of experts, of doctors and scientists and whoever, expert PhDs, to figure out what is best for the people. And they're going to make those shadow puppets on the wall in the right. cave with the candle. Exactly. And then convince us to <laughs> right. do it. And, you know, and that was the original example is World War One. But people voted against the war and brought in Woodrow Wilson. And then Woodrow Wilson said, oh, actually, we better get involved in that war. And then they had to do PR. So I think Does about- Does this predate Bernays? Yes, this was, he was Bernays' mentor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then Bernays went on the Creel Commission that, that Lippmann advised and started and took- Lippmann's well-intentioned propagandistic efforts. He's like, how can we use this to sell Benson cigarettes? Benson and edges uh, right. to women. <laughs> exactly. Torches of freedom. Right. 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 Okay. <laughs> which, is, which is the whole thing. It's like, once you develop the weapon, bad people are going to start using it. But, but I think even if, if Lippmann was well-intentioned, this, again, thinking politically, this is the thing that conservatives, I think, by and large, and libertarians bristle at this idea, this paternalistic notion of like, we know best as the government, just right. listen to us, and the government knowingly giving misleading information with the idea that that will bring about the results they want. As you just gave right. an example, you know, this is, but right. We only want people to wear a specific type of mask in a specific type of situation. We don't think the American public is capable of following that instruction. Therefore, we'll just say everyone wear masks all the time because that's the only way to achieve that that goal. Right, exactly. And, and it's I, the way you do like peanut right. allergy rules right. in elementary right. schools. It's like, okay, look, this is just too hard. No peanuts within three miles of the school, right. period. <laughs> so, and I, th right. I, I the, the term for that I think I've heard is, is the noble lie. That right. it's okay to to bullshit a little bit or miss or twist let's bend things a little bit as long because it's noble this is a worthwhile cause because we know that this is the 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 correct thing this is the end result yeah. we want and we can say 
whatever we need to say to achieve that final right. result. It's like parents to a child. I mean, you shouldn't say, don't open that door because there's a monster behind that right. closet. Right. You know, there's right. a monster in there. Right. Oh no, because you're going to damage the child forever. You know, which is why I always thought Santa Claus was such a terrible strategy for Christians. It's like, have kids believe in this guy that's going to see if you're doing good or not and then reward you at the end. Say, oh no, Santa's not real. Don't worry. But God is real. And, right. and St. Right. Peter's real. You know, well, also, <laughs> and also when they inevitably find out that Santa Claus isn't real, there is some sort of like fundamental sense, I believe, that like the, kid, the kids internalize, oh, I've been lied to. <laughs> exactly. My parents lied to me. Right. My priests lied to right. me. Everyone, oh, oh, this was just a fun thing. Really? I really believed in that. I don't know. It is It is funny how this is this contract. Well, you got two Jews here. What do we yeah, know? I maybe know, maybe exactly. there's some, we're it's just, good for you we're just bitter. Maybe it's it's No, and maybe it's thing. about teaching disillusionment so that- Oh, we're going to purposefully <laughs> lie to you about this wonderful man who brings you presents for the, for the, because it's beneficial for you to then have that taken away from you to right. learn. So you won't fall in the, society, in the spell right. of a demagogue. Or right, something. exactly. This is a way to keep it from worshiping false things. And, right. But so, but the, the, just so we're, we're, we're clear here, you don't believe Bill Gates is putting nanobots in things or that, yes, that he intentionally created COVID in order to make us, yeah, and, but, and Biden didn't make a deal with the Chinese to infect Americans to take down Trump. I mean, you don't go to any of those places. The vaccines, and I'll start off by saying this, that you know all available evidence suggests that the vaccines are incredibly safe. Also, they appear to be very beneficial for most of the population once you, once you become an adult, that when you look at the risk-benefit ratio, you are better off getting vaccinated than you are getting COVID and getting natural immunity. Now, does that mean that everyone who gets COVID, even if you're an adult, is going to be horribly sick? No, it does not. And it also doesn't mean that some adults who get vaccinated won't have bad results as well. But if you look at the data and you weigh it out on a scale, you know, on each side, it's going to tip slowly that benefit and risk shifts as you get younger and younger for most people, or if, you know, depending on what your underlying conditions are. So you mean, so the, the, the younger you are, the less sick you get to the, and the less relatively beneficial it is to be vaccinated. Well, by and large, yes. Right. There are some kids who will get sick, unfortunately, right. and there are some a very, very small number who even have died. Right. Um, but yeah, correct. The numbers show that, and we've known this for a year and a half. It doesn't this mean kids not- shouldn't be vaccinated, but you're just saying right now that the risk-benefit uh, ratio is different for kids. It's very different. It's not even a little different. It's very different. <laughs> okay. And so- one of so which is why probably they haven't yet approved two so, to twelve. So here, our horrible government okay. of terrible people are still being thoughtful enough to say let's wait here, despite the pressure being put right. on them. So I mean, there are doctors who are you know have have parents, you know, pediatricians have parents begging them to give them bribing uh, them probably the, the, yeah off labeled to their to their ten year old because they're freaking out. There are two reasons. So they just expanded the trial for the kids below 12. They said, and there are only two reasons to expand a trial. One is if there's a safety signal and we need to, you know, and they need to adjust the dosage and get more people in that, like something's going wrong. Or two is that they're not finding it to be particularly efficacious, that children are at such low risk of serious disease or even symptomatic disease. The CDC estimated that around up to 50% of kids are asymptomatic. Imagine that. 
a virus yeah. that half the kids who get it don't even know when they have it. So that's a really but then high bar to clear. I know, with but the vaccine we're supposed to, to be scared, though. Though the, the kids, the kids don't have it, but they got all the pus and snot and stuff with all the covids in it, and then they walk into a, <laughs> a barber shop and give it to all the old well, men. Well, those people should be vaccinated if they're adults and and protecting themselves. The vaccine is not perf- does not offer perfect protection, as we know now against Delta. It doesn't even seem to offer protection against infection, but it still does by all the evidence. Makes you, you know, not die. It, right. Supposedly, or it helps reduce right. the risk of serious helps illness. Helps me not die is right. still good to me. Still a good, still a good thing. Exactly. <laughs> so again, the vaccine makes sense. The, the higher risk you have, the more it makes sense to get to be vaccinated. Yeah. But as you go down, the risk decreases and decreases. So the reason they've expanded the trial from the from my sources who I speak with, and these are not like weird fringe people. These are people at places like Harvard Medical right. School, and other, is that most likely it means they've been having trouble with the small number of people finding that the that the vaccine is really outperforming placebo by any large measure. Right. So you have, and in order for the FDA to approve a vaccine, it has to show safety and that it's effective. So right. so by increasing the numbers, fine. Then if you if you need ten thousand or a hundred thousand, you know, eventually you hopefully we'll start to see a signal um, and that that it makes sense. So right. that's why that's taking longer. What the data shows is that younger people, and in particular young males, this was you know from age whatever. I think this. I think that most of the data was actually not starting at the twelve year olds, but from sixteen before yeah. they approved it, approved the, the the EUA for down to twelve. But just sixteen to say like thirty year olds, or sixteen to twenty five, or twenty two, um, that their incidence of myocarditis was, which is like a heart. Inflammation? Correct. It's yeah. an inflammation of the heart. And then there's something called pericarditis, which is the inflammation of the muscle or the lining. Sac. Excuse me. The, yeah. yeah, the sac, the lining around the heart. But um, but generally that the incidence of myocarditis was completely off the charts relative to what you would expect to see if people weren't vaccinated right. for, in this particular population. And what they found was, and these are in the CDC's own slides yeah. that they showed during their um, advisory committee meetings. So you can access yeah. all of this stuff online and the slideshow, and you see it broken down by um, gender and by age. And what you see, and I'm, this, I'm speaking off the cuff here, so yeah. the numbers might be off by a little bit, yeah. but roughly what they found was like out of a million that the young males, like 16 to 20 something had an incidence of something like 62 or 68 incident cases of myocarditis following vaccination when the expected number was like, you know, five or something like right. that, or three. And then young women had something like eight um, cases. Now, so let's, let's position this here again, the numbers, I might be off by one or two, but essentially it was like 60 something for young males and it was eight for young females. But what the CDC did was, um, Rochelle Walensky went on television and a- a- after the meeting happened, she said, here's what we know. She said, look, myocarditis, not a big deal. 
The cases are all mild. Not all the cases are mild. And in fact, I spoke to a number of cardiologists um, and one of them said, there is no such thing as mild myocarditis. So maybe clinically- um, Right, like Bernie's mild heart attack. Right, Right. yeah. There's no such thing. (laughs) Let me ask any parent who's listening to this. If you have a child who's having a heart condition and they are in the intensive care unit, would you ever describe Mm -hmm. that as a mild condition? No. So maybe clinically they can describe that, you know, the, the medical profession but a regular person does yeah. not um, define the word mild in that manner. Right. So nevertheless, she refers to it as you're going to see 30 something cases of mild myocarditis for every million kids, you know, people who are getting the vaccine. Don't sweat it. But what she did was she took, how do you get 30 something? Well, if you average out the 60 something for the young males with the like eight of the young females, that's how you get 30 something. Right. So, and then, so she's essentially burying the signal. And this, you right. know, I spoke with a number of epidemiologists. So I was like, is that normal? Is that, and they said, no, that is not when there is very, very clear, beautifully precise data for different age cohorts right. or different genders. And then what's interesting is Doug, they took it a step further in the summary slide at the end of the presentation, not only did they merge the male and females, they took it from, I don't know if it was either age 12 or 16, whatever the base age was, all the way up to 39. And then they said, look, there's only 12 cases. This is amazing. There's only 12 cases of myocarditis. They they buried the signal of, so yes, if you are a person, a human being between, you know, whatever it was, 12 or 16, all the way up to 39, you have, there's a chance that 12 of those people, but- if you are a young male, right, age 16 to like 24 or whatever it is, then it's 60. So if you're a person and you have a healthy 15-year-old son, he was a lacrosse yeah. player, whatever, yeah. you know, handsome young buck is gonna be a quarterback. <laughs> um, you have a healthy boy. Um, do you want to be told, oh, well, look, there's only 12 cases out of out of a million? Or be, because that because they're bearing this right. particular signal, or do you want to be told, um, the truth, which is your son, because he's a boy and he's within this certain age bracket, has a completely different risk profile than a 38-year-old woman. Well, it's it depends. completely different. I want to be told if they're gonna, I mean, this is like if they're gonna mandate the vaccine, I want to be told the comforting thing. <laughs> okay, well then right. Well that's right? Set, right. But there you go. But that's the whole thing. Littman, so right. they're trying to set up. Right. They're trying to set up a situation where everyone goes and gets the vaccine. They want everyone to get it, even if there's that risk. They don't want parents of boys saying, well, I don't want to do it because he's a boy. And then if they found out that like Jewish boys have 30 percent chance and, you know, black Jewish kids have 70 percent chance, they're going to not say that either. I I don't know. I mean, there is, by the way, someone could still have their 15 year old healthy son vaccinated, that's still an entirely reasonable decision. That is not crazy. But similarly, it is also not crazy to say, if I have a healthy 15-year-old son, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make a different decision. Or at least- That is not unreasonable. At least the thing with, um, you know, with like, uh, uh, I remember with amniocentesis and, and, uh, you know, uh, fetuses, Mm -hmm. you know, that you can do amniocentesis and find out if you have a uh, a Downs baby or something. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily abort Mm -hmm. even, but- Mm -hmm. 
you at least know, oh, we've got a high-risk pregnancy. Right. We mean? need this information. So and it's gonna change the way we move, the way we move forward. So just you know, denying the information is kind of criminal when people are trying to make intelligent choices for themselves and their families. But the presumption here is that people, individuals, uneducated, non-MD, regular Americans should not be making those decisions for themselves. Well, so so let me add two other things. Again, I want to emphasize, I am not anti-vax. I, I am vaccinated myself. This is not, and, and the fact and I that I get feel, to that too, the fact that, you have that to say I feel it. the need to add this sort of like, you know, qualifier or like sort of like defensive, like preamble, like just before yeah. I start, let me say I'm not against vaccine. Like that's a problem in and of itself that the public conversation is so stilted. And these are things that people should be informed because these yeah, ultimately but, aren't but, MD questions. No, these are ethical yeah, and philosophical but they go back choices. to the original um, philosophical thing we were talking about, which is the relationship of the individual to the herd. Mm. Right now, public health officials are not looking at individuals as individuals. They are looking at America as this one organism, right? And here are these cells over there you're talking about. Oh, look at those boys. Are these cells over in the liver? And the liver really doesn't like when we give this medicine. But oh, the, the rest of the America is a body. Is yes. that your metaphor? Well, okay, they're okay, doctors. Okay, okay, I was just following. They look at everything okay, like, right, right America okay. is this body. And okay. yeah, you know, you got, you got, uh, uh, you know, a fungal infection. We're going to give you this uh, uh, Lamisil tablet to take right. for six weeks. Right. It does liver damage. Right. You know? It's systemic. <laughs> right. It's that, because well, it's an interesting metaphor because the, the med, some medication we take is, you know, if you take an antibiotic, it's you're, you're taking a pill. Um, or, or if you're in the hospital, it could be intravenous, yeah. but whatever. But it's this, it's going through your whole body. Right. And that's versus the way they look at the. If you right. have a scrape on your arm, you can right. take that, you know, neosporin, and it, that's localized. Right. It's local. But that's right. the way they're looking at the disease. They're looking at this big pandemic thing. Right. And if those people over there don't have vaccines, oh no, it's mutating and turning into this other shit, you know, and that's going to affect this side. They're looking at the whole, how do we just, I mean, it's almost Trump style. How do we bleach the nation? Right. <laughs> right. Cover the whole so, thing. It's a, it's a medical philosophy. Philosophy, and that leads to these these kind of untruths, right? right? But then the my noble my, lie, right? Again, the noble right. lie. Then my question to you is: You've now made made a, a career, if you will, but not really. You've you you've focused as an investigative journalist on noble lies, or or perhaps potentially, hopefully, at least, at you least know, according to many right, experts right. who I speak with. At least with. we hope that they're noble, right? But lies, right. Okay, right, right. you know, and let, let's 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 give them the, the let's let's give them the good at least to believe that Fauci is not doing this to personally profit. That Fauci is uh, Fauci and and Rochelle and whoever they believe mm -hmm. at least in their heart of hearts that this is somehow good, right. right, for everybody on a health level, and that they're making this political, ethical, system systemic, organismic, cultural, social choice. Right. So how do you then criticize it without, I mean, my, my, the thing that always uh, upsets me is I'll see you do a piece with these factual things that mm -hmm. are true. Mm -hmm. And then among the many brilliant Harvard educated doctors who will quote and tweet and retweet and heart and all that stuff, all the people who've been very deeply disillusioned by government and civilization jump in to say, you see, Bill Gates is nanos of this, that it fuel. How do we how do we bring the bad news to people without fueling this this the, the, the conspiracy people? I mean, and is it our responsibility? I don't know the answer. However, one of the things that I 
think or yeah. hope is part of the answer is and what I've been doing since the very beginning of the pandemic is I, I wonder, Doug, if, if part of the answer to that question is that we must continue to not be so solipsistic and this American exceptionalism. And one of the things that I've been writing about from day one and that I wrote about in my masking article and even I touch on in the, it's funny now that I'm recalling it and speaking with you, the vaccine article. So let me jump back to the vaccines. One of the interesting things is many other countries in Europe um, that, that, you know, are sort of our peer type of nations, yeah. places we respect that right. liberals that, that love. Have real cars and TVs Guess and everything. What? Yeah, They did not. Um, approved the vaccines immediately the way we did down to 12 years old. They did not say, everybody just get vaccinated, two doses, boom, do it, full same strength, everything, go. They did not have the same program that we had. In fact, many of those countries still have not approved the vaccine for general use among children down to 12 years old the way we have. Some of the countries have said um, only kids with underlying conditions. Whoa, right. here's the thing I was just talking about. Now, I suspect some portion of your listeners, when I said that five, 10 minutes ago, were like, who's this asshole anti-vax person? Yeah. He's some jerk off. But please be aware, countries in Western Europe that we respect actually have the same policy that I was just talking about where they said, no, let's look at the risk benefit calculation. And hey, here's what we've come up with. We think only kids with underlying conditions, those are the only people, and other ones said, let's do one dose. And then we'll see, because most of these cases of myocarditis and other things happen after the second dose. So this is nuance that's right, happening nuance. in Europe. Right. So they do so, nuance so, over there, but because they can handle the well, truth. Well, well, right. So this gets, <laughs> but this gets to my point is that I try to always look at what's happening elsewhere. Right. And I can't help but wonder, I can't know if that's going to turn off the Bill Gates microchip people, but I hope that that helps penetrate the sort of regular normie kind of, you know, New York Times reading audience, like my mom and dad or whatever, that like when I say, hey, wait a minute, did you know that the World Health Organization has repeatedly throughout the pandemic said, we do not want kids wearing masks under six, period. And that's dramatically different from the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics who want two-year-olds two and three-year-olds wearing masks. So people need to have an awareness that outside the U.S., the policies for vaccine, the policies for masking children are very different from what they are here. And many countries, and I listen to them, you can go on their government websites and look it up. They do not require children at varying age. Some of them are below six. Some of them are below 12. Some of them are kids don't have to wear masks, period, all the way up through high school, except maybe when you're in like the hallways and public areas, right. but when you're cla classroom itself. So there's this whole range of policies regarding masking children that are very different from here in the U.S. And these are by countries that have, you know, that are politically liberal. There is nothing inherently right-wing or Trumpian about saying, hey, wait a minute, I'm not sure it's a good idea for my five-year-old to be wearing a mask all day, every day in school for um, now what's going on a year and a half right. of his or her life. There's nothing inherently Trumpian right. about that. That is literally the conclusion that these countries we respect and look up to right. have come to. Right, the social, whatever they are. So the, maybe the, by the me, social democracies. Bringing this to light because so much 
of the reportage and that's someone uh, on COVID, but I guess everything yeah. is just about what's happening in America. So if you read an article in a prestigious publication and they only mention, here's what the CDC says, and you need to listen to the CDC, or if you don't, you're just some Trump jerk off, like lunatic libertarian person um, that you need to listen to the CDC. How dare you well, question right. them? But what pe- what the article leaves out is, oh, but by the way, the World Health Organization differs dramatically from what the CDC recommends. Does the CDC know something that the WHO doesn't? Maybe, but I doubt, I doubt that's right. the case. And here's something that all these other countries are doing differently than we're doing here. And that context is continually left out of so many of these COVID articles. So every single thing I write, I try to always bring up what other countries are doing. And it's not that... that other countries don't have their own unique circumstances and that you can't always apply what's happening in France or the UK to here, but they are humans. Right. But those are people, those are countries where you pay before you go on the subway or the bus and they don't even check. Okay. You know what I mean? These are countries where their sense of cooperation is so much higher than ours. I think that the Lipman argument would be, look, Americans, we're too stupid. You know, we're too uncooperative. We need simple yes, no. I mean, we don't I mean, have- that is literally in, what the, the, yeah, the in, guidance has in been Europe, here. They Everyone have, wear a goddamn yeah, mask or you're a yeah, piece of but shit look at the difference. trying to kill yeah, people. But if look, you don't wear, if you're a two-year-old not wearing a mask. I know, I look at that on, on, on MSNBC and they always right. say, oh, look at them, the, the disease, the maskless are killing us right, all. Yeah. Right, but, but America has horrible traffic lights, right? right? Stop or go. You go to Europe, they have these things called traffic circles. The roundabout, yeah. The roundabout, and- they're really, they're super efficient. You go, and there's only two rules, right? You yield right of way to people who are in it, and you go to the right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you go around this thing, and you don't have to stop. It's not like stop or go. It's just like you work it out, and everything circulates, like blood circulating in a body. It's like they can negotiate that for some reason. Maybe it's because we had such wide open spaces. I don't know, but we went for the simple traffic light, green or red. But, green the, or red. but, but the data shows that, that when they implement um, traffic circles in America, they work very well here as they well. Still if, do. They're, if they're designed properly, they're just not popular. But, <laughs> but you know, they just haven't been able to. So I guess what I'm saying is the reason we don't have the, the roundabout here is not because we can't handle a roundabout. Right. It's just because it, it, for who knows why it was done, but the but it's not because. The Americans are intrinsically DNA wise unable to cooperate. Look, I've driven in, (laughs) and you know, we've I've driven in the heart of Paris before when you're going around the Arc de Triomphe and these other these other circles. It's pretty damn chaotic. They do not the drivers there, and there's this there's this highway in um in Montevideo in Uruguay where it's like seven lanes wide and there were no lines painted and i like and i was a white knuckling the steering wheel and and i'm like holy shit and you know what it was it was a bit chaotic it was scary i guess my point is it's not they're not doing a fabulous job at the roundabouts either i think we overestimate the the sort of like unique stupidity of Americans. I think most people are stupid everywhere. <laughs> right. We are not uniquely barbaric here right. relative to other places. I think we can handle the roundabouts and I think we can handle saying that a two-year-old 
should not be wearing a mask. I like the idea that you're seeing part of your responsibility as a journalist in order to fix the situation is to help uh, pull back the lens and help America see itself as one of many nations mm. and to see what's happening around the world in other places. I mean, that's an argument I use for our, our internet use a lot too. It's like, oh, look, you know, Europe's working on privacy regulations. We could work on that too or think about that or, you know, so so it, it's a great, I mean, and Rick Maxwell at, at, at Queens College, he's always, you know, international studies is the way to go. We've got to see how other countries do it and see it as a world, not as a nation. So, so public utilities, sort of like the, yeah. like the, 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 the town, like aren't there these townships owning their own internet pipes yeah, now? All sorts of other stuff, stuff that right, other people okay. are doing that we right. could do too. If we, if we th thought about other countries and how they do things there. And I think that solipsism is, is real, but it's really tricky to tell the truth. I mean, this has been, in some ways it's been the Jewish problem for a thousand or more years. It's like, are you going to tell them they're worshiping a rock? No. You know, you know, yeah, Sammy, Sammy, stay quiet, stay quiet. You just don't tell them. They're going to get very mad. They're going to get very mad if you tell them, you know, do you tell them that capitalism is just extracting their wealth and giving it to the rich? Well, the poor aren't going to like you for saying that and the rich aren't going to just keep it quiet. Keep it, you know, with your marks, you know, don't, don't, don't say these things. You'll get us in trouble. Um, it's very, it's very tricky. And I know, I think, I think your impulse as you look at the CDC and our government titrating information in ways that they think is appropriate for us and making the same mistake again and again and again, I think you as a journalist are going, look, this is not working. Let's just tell the truth as much as possible and see if they can handle that. Are you also telling truths about uh, uh, what we can do? Well, yeah. I mean, by pointing out, here's what they're doing in Europe. We can do right. that. We because like open the windows. What do we do? Right. So, <laughs> well, it's interesting. Uh, so, a study just came out, published in MMWR. That's the CDC's like, journal. Yeah. Um, it just came out. Marin County. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. The Marin California. The Marin, no, well, the Marin County study. So, just, there is an outbreak in the school. Guess what? The school, the classroom had. Um, it was a teacher who was infected and infected a whole bunch of students in the classroom. There was a mask mandate in the school. Guess what else? The windows were open. Guess what else? There was a HEPA filter. I know Doug's face for, so what for listeners do? is aghast right now. So one of the things is, and I had a conversation with an infectious disease person last night who was um, upset with me about my article and reached out to me. And um, and I said, I'd love to speak with you. I'm happy to, you know, I, I want to talk to anybody. Yeah. Um, so we had to come. And, and I said, one of the things is, even if masks do work, let's put that aside. Let's say they, let's grant that, that they're very effective. And again, when we say masks, we have to be very careful yeah. about what type of mask. But anyway, let's say the, the mask, I was very careful in my article to say mask mandates, not masks themselves. And the thing is compliance. And, and not only because the teacher, apparently, according to the, to the study in the MMWR in the CDC's journal, apparently the teacher pulled the mask down, um, his or her mask down multiple times when they were reading because right. as you know, no one can understand you or whatever. So, they took so the then mask. she spit all her COVID so she dust so at the she children. Was, well, right. So part of the reason, part and, of the, and, and it's very different. I mean, just Teachers wearing masks is different than children wearing masks. That's and correct. I saw in the Johns Hopkins study that they said when teachers wear masks, it really does reduce the rate of COVID because they're speaking out and spraying all over the kids. But what is our, our responsibility and strategy as knowledgeable intellectuals in the press? How do we break 
this news to Americans in a way that doesn't simply inflame the conspiracy theorists. I mean, back before COVID, I was trying to write a piece about how we have to acknowledge the concerns of anti-vax people in order to sort of bring them into a, a more normal conversation. Because there are there are tiny but real risks. There are kids who've gotten fucked up from these things. If you shield someone from all information to the contrary, then they're more vulnerable to it. This is not the way to bring people in by by maligning, by belittling. That that does that's not an effective strategy. Right. People who've been studying this stuff for years and who are sort of in the trenches right. working on stuff, and you saw this with um with the AIDS epidemic that happened, that when there is a kind of this dismissal of people in a way, now I can imagine some liberals thinking in their head right now. Oh, so I have to worry about the snowflake, you know, be, you know, hurt feelings of some stupid conservative person who's like, who's afraid of the vaccine. You know, why is it my job to like have to like treat them with kid gloves and like I have to be nice to them? Well, I mean, whether that's the case or not, no one wants to be belittled and no one responds well to to threats for like you must yeah. do this or ultimatum it's, it's not the, an effective public health basket strategy basket of deplorables right. is killing us all right. it's not you know, an effective strategy yeah. even if so again it's not that necessarily they're wrong in being pissed about some people for for some of these things but it certainly is not the way to bring people in it just doesn't work instead right. if you so and there there's i mean there are a number of doctors who've talked about this where they said i've had Patients, you know, doctors who are not just researchers, but who are seeing people clinically and they say, I've had a lot of vaccine hesitant patients and the way that I've gotten to change their minds, at least the people whose minds I change, wasn't by saying, are you a fucking moron? You know, come on, what are you talking about? Like, this is ridiculous. Get vaccinated. You are hurting society. You're an asshole. You're selfish. No. The way I got these people to change their mind was I sat down with them and I said, tell me what your concerns are. Right. And then they went through their list, whatever it may be. Obviously, if it's like a microchip person, maybe you can't reach them. But the people are like, well, I'm really worried. This is a new type of technology. I'm worried about, you know, the side effect. Whatever it was, they went through all their concerns and the doctor said, okay, let me talk with you about each right. of these things. And exactly. then they went through it. You, you appeal to their autonomy. You and but it, and what I guess what I want to say is not all of these concerns are unreasonable right. or outlandish. So it's not just about oh let's you have to treat them nicely because mm. they're dumb and they're crazy. But if you treat them nicely, then they'll go along with the vaccine or these other things. No, it's not just about them being dumb or crazy. Some of their concerns are not unreasonable. Right. You just have to have a conversation. It is okay to recognize that bad things sometimes happen from something that overall is good. Right. Bad things happen on the highway every day, but we all get in our cars and go on the highway anyway because it takes it does something good for us. It takes us to places we want to go and we are willing to accept some risk. In the same reason that I got vaccinated, I knew there was some low-level risk. I was willing to accept that risk because overall it was taking me somewhere I wanted to go. Right. When I talk with you, what's what's rewarding is you help bring and you know bring out for me and, and maybe you do this with your other guests too, or just like in life, when you're talking to people, when you have a good conversation with someone, at least as a, if I can call myself an intellectual or a writer or whatever I am, that verbalizing a lot of this stuff helps me see 
the through line between different things that I'm writing about, whether it's the invisibles, whether it's about the book I was writing on self-consciousness or whether it's the stuff I'm mm. working on now with COVID that in some regards, they seem very siloed. Oh, I'm bouncing yeah. around. But when I'm talking with you and having an interesting, long open conversation, something that a podcast can do. The yeah. medium itself matters. Whereas if you're on a radio spot for 12 minutes or even that, when you have a long form conversation with someone who's curious and thoughtful and wise the way you are, um, that it helps me start verbalizing things. I'm like, oh my God, I'm seeing all these connections between all these different things that I think about and write about that I thought were different, but they actually, the way things can connect. Oh uh, yeah. Well, that's what I've always hoped for this to be the conversational equivalent of a good jam band. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, a, like that, the second, the second act of a fish concert or something, you know, <laughs> where it goes off and, but then, and then it goes off in so many directions that you can see the hole again. Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. It's not just sort of like circuitous or something yeah. that it actually, you start to see the patterns and start to see the connections. Even when you let yourself sprinkle around. It's an act of faith though. It's a leap of faith to go there. But when you do, it all starts to make sense again. So thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on Team Human. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was David Zweig. You could read more of his stuff at Wired Magazine or at New York Magazine. Or you can go to teamhuman.fm and click on the links. And while you're there, you can also click on support to become a supporting member of the team. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.